Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories, Uber impersonators are abducting unsuspecting women in California who are waiting for their rides. Can the rideshare company be held civilly responsible for those assaults? A lawsuit out of New York will put the state's new nuisance statute to work where the victim of a mass shooting is suing the gun manufacturer Glock for creating a public nuisance and a massive class certification in Illinois federal court that would include practically every American except vegans and a class action for price fixing against poultry producers could help explain why the price of food has been so dang high lately. All of that and more, here's what you need to know. All right, up first, Uber, the ride-sharing company, was sued in Los Angeles County based on the allegations of three women named in the suit as Jane Doe's 1, 2, and 3 that they were lured into the vehicle of Uber impersonators and then assaulted. The assailants had decked out their cars with Uber decals that they had ordered from the company's website. From what I can tell, the women had ordered these Uber drivers to pick them up. Then while they waited, vehicles that looked like their drivers with all of the bells and whistles of an Uber vehicle approached them and invited them to come in, at which point they were assaulted. The woman alleged that Uber was a common carrier, the classic example of which is to say a public train for those of you that don't know. As a common carrier, Uber would have a special relationship with its riders such that it should provide the highest level of care under the law. However, the California Court of Appeals' 2nd Appellate District affirmed the L.A. Superior Court decision dismissing the case, though the women were given leave to replete and refile. Holding that Uber was not a common carrier under these circumstances, it had no duty to protect or warn the women that this scheme was ongoing. Quote, although it is foreseeable that third parties could abuse the platform in this way, such crime must be a necessary component of the Uber app or Uber entities' actions in order for the Uber entities to be held liable, absent a special relationship between the parties, the Second District Appellate Court said. Now, I'm quoting from a Law 360 piece on the matter. Quote, the woman said Uber's business model created a risk that individuals could employ what they called the fake Uber scheme. The company should have but didn't protect potential victims from the ploy, they said. The women said that Uber negligently failed to warn them about the scheme, failed to implement additional safety precautions to protect them, and hid instances of sexual assault by individuals pretending to be Uber drivers. At the same time, Uber continued to advertise its services as safe transportation options for women, they added. All in all, the court held that the specifics of the common carrier relationship had not been established in part because the women were still waiting for their rides when the impersonators intervened. Going back to the Law 360 piece, quote, while the women alleged they had been accepted as passengers by Uber on the app, I think they mean, at the time of the abductions, the panel said Uber had no control over what happened while they were waiting for their rides, unquote. I cover this piece because the law has been struggling to adapt to a new set of relationships and the ways in which people interact via the gig economy, and this seemed like a new and novel attempt at doing that. We covered something similar way back in episode six regarding lawsuits filed against Uber for violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example. In any event, always check the license plate of your Uber when it picks you up. Next, I hate to say it, but it seems like it's easy to forget 
certain mass shootings that happen weeks or months ago these days because they're happening so often. But recall the subway shooting in New York City in April of this year. One of the victims is testing out a new law passed in only 2021 by the state of New York that would allow her to sue gun makers for creating a nuisance that endangers public safety and health. The defendant's marketing and distribution practices make it far more likely that criminals, including Frank James, he was the shooter in that case, would obtain their weapons, the woman's lawyers wrote in a complaint filed on Tuesday in a Brooklyn federal court. So I want to talk about the law itself for a moment. For this, I'm relying on a piece written by Professor Tim Lighton, a law professor at Georgia State University. Quote, New York's amended statute holds gun manufacturers and sellers responsible for the public nuisance of illegal gun use if they fail to implement, quote, reasonable controls to prevent the unlawful sale, possession, or use of firearms within the state. The law specifies that reasonable controls includes implementing programs to secure inventory from theft and prevent illegal retail sales. Under the law, both public officials and private citizens can file lawsuits seeking money damages and a court injunction to compel offending parties to stop the nuisance. For example, a gun manufacturer who sold weapons that were sub subsequently used in crimes could be held liable if it failed to take reasonable measures to ensure that retail dealers did not engage in illegal sales practices, unquote. So looking at the text of the regulation itself, and it defines some of these key terms here, quote, reasonable controls and procedures shall mean policies that include, but are not limited to, instituting screening, security, inventory, and other business practices to prevent theft of qualified products as well as sales of qualified products to straw purchasers, traffickers, persons prohibited from possessing firearms under state or federal law, or persons at risk of injuring themselves or others, and preventing deceptive acts and practices and false advertising and otherwise ensuring compliance with all provisions of yada, yada, yada. There's some citations to other New York statutes there. Anyways, the lawsuit filed this week by a woman named Elaine Steer is seeking compensation under this law against the Glock firearm manufacturing company for creating the nuisance. Now, is this going to pass constitutional muster? Well, two weeks ago, a federal district court in Albany, New York, tossed a suit by gun manufacturers such as Smith & Wesson, Ruger, and other claimants who were seeking to enjoin the enforcement of this statute. So for now, it is good law. This is another trend that we've been noticing here on the show and we've been covering in the last couple of episodes. Governments around the 50 states are enacting laws that create specific civil causes of action that allow private citizens to collect damages for things that, if regulated directly by the state, would probably be unconstitutional, at least if the state were to attempt to enforce them directly. So, of course, we have the Texas abortion uh bounty style laws that are now spreading to places like Oklahoma. California is passing a similar law to that, which would create a bounty for illegal firearms. We covered the way in which public nuisance under the common law was being used to sue opioid manufacturers in New Jersey for creating the opioid epidemic back in episode three. State regulators seem to be turning more and more to these kinds of private enforcement options to enact their specific policy goals, I think in part to get around the constitutional issues. One wonders if and when we'll see some kind of tipping point where the myriad of civil penalty suits among the 50 states substantially impedes interstate commerce so as to, I don't know, maybe potentially implicate the dormant commerce clause. And if you 
remember how the Dormant Commerce Clause works from your con law classes without looking it up, you're lying. And for our last story, inflation. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. What is causing the rising prices of just about everything these days? Is it the supply chain issues because we import everything from China and their manufacturing cities are currently sealed up? Is it because of monetary policy by the Fed, the war in Ukraine? Is it because we have monopolistic domestic suppliers that face little to no competition in the domestic market and therefore have incredibly fragile supply chains? Maybe all of the above. Mostly it depends on where you fall on the political spectrum, frankly. What about price fixing? What if you heard that from 2008 through 2019, the major chicken producers in this country conspired, I mean conspiracy in the legal sense, to limit the supply so as to directly boost the prices? Wouldn't that cause or contribute to the soaring prices of produce in a way that really had nothing to do with China, Ukraine, or COVID? That's right. Good old fashion American price fixing, and that's exactly what producers of poultry products are alleging is the case right here on my home turf in the Northern District of Illinois. Judge Tom Durkin of the Eastern Division certified a class alleging that certain chicken producers violated the Sherman Act this past week here in Illinois. So let's start with who's in the class. There's three different subclasses, if you will. First, there's the direct buyers, which is basically anyone who purchased broiler chicken directly from the defendants. And here I'm picturing like grocery stores. There's indirect buyers, which is anyone who purchased chicken for their own commercial use. I think this is probably like restaurants. And then there's end users, which is everyday people who bought chicken from, say, the grocery store. According to Judge Durkin's order, the end user class includes, quote, nearly every individual consumer of chicken in the United States, unquote. So basically, everyone who's not a vegan in the United States could potentially be a member of this class. So just a casual 300 million person class, no big deal. Uh, Judge Durkin's 50-page order certifying the class lays out the case pretty clearly. Now, broiler chicken production has increased at a consistent rate for decades. Then, in 2008, production started decreasing all of a sudden. As the production started decreasing, prices naturally rose. The defendant companies in the case own and operate virtually all of the components of the domestic market. Chicken breeders, flocks, hatcheries, feed mills, the chicken inventory itself, transportation, slaughter, processing plants, marketing, sales, and distribution. According to Judge Durkin, quote, this vertical integration makes collusive supply reduction easy to effectuate, unquote. Now, there is, of course, other evidence presented by the plaintiffs, which includes private and public communications between the defendant companies, the fact that they started destroying breeder hens, and this I didn't quite understand, but presumably they were destroying breeder hens, which means, I guess, killing the breeder hens, presumably so as to limit the amount of chickens that could be bred. I'm picturing some type of breeder hen massacre, and it's not a pleasant image. All of this allegedly led to higher prices, and considering that the prices went up due to decreased production, the production overhead for chicken producers went down during this time, overall increasing the profit margin on both sides of that equation. All of which, of course, led to higher prices for everyday people like you and me. Now, similar investigations into the price-fixing scandal by the DOJ recently resulted in the indictment of four poultry executives in 2020, then six more individuals working for producers like Claxton Poultry, Pilgrim's Pride, and Tyson Foods. 
So it's a huge scandal. Allegations of price fixing and price gouging have become more and more common as of late with people really noticing the impact of rising food prices has on their pocketbooks. And of course, there are similar lawsuits in other areas of the food sector as well. For example, just in April of 2020, pork producers settled a similar class action for $100 million, which had underlying allegations basically the same as the chicken lawsuit we just covered. And as we covered back in episode 14 of the show, the Biden administration is seeking to intervene and maybe potentially break up some of these monopolies in the food industries. All of this is something to keep your mind on when you hear politicians and the pundit class talking about inflation and blaming on whatever political punching bag is on the menu that day. Some of it, perhaps a lot of it, can be explained by good old-fashioned American greed. Thanks, everyone. That's the show. A reminder, every Tuesday, if you like what we're doing here, you can subscribe, uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Um, shout out to my former colleague, Gabe Wonderling, who left a very nice review on our Apple Podcasts. Um, I appreciate that, Gabe. Otherwise, we will talk to you next week.